Hi, I'm Joel. And I'm Kishin. And this is Tea for Two. This is our BFF podcast where we talk about anything from science to popular culture, the arts, and life in Singapore. everyone, it's me, Joel. I'm a playwright and performer. And I'm Kishan, a science educator. And welcome back to our best friend podcast, Tea for two. two. Before we go straight into it, I think we want to say thank you for everyone who listened to episode one. There were like 120 views and it just blew our minds. So thank you so much. Yeah, because we thought like it'd be just the two of us, right? And now yeah, we, have, really. like, we, have, we have a small little audience. I I know. Uh, and we've prepared a very, very nice episode for you today. So thanks for coming back and we hope the return trip was worth it. Well, before we get into things, how are you, Kishin? Well, I've been all right. Um, <laughs> I've actually gone back to school a bit and mm. it's nice to have that bit of routine. But I tell you, Joel, you know that on the last episode, you talked about how the supermarket is now such a... It's such an awful place to be in and everybody's a little bit suspicious of each other and the place just changed. I feel the same way about school. It's such a weird place to be in now that I could not wait to leave and it made me a bit sad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, I've actually been kind of enjoying the tranquility of the stay home life a little bit. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. It's like, it's it's, it's exactly as my mother put it over dinner the other day, right? Like, you know, she has this way of trotting out these unexpected pearls of wisdom. (laughs) So... There we were sitting in front of the TV during dinner and then she suddenly goes very quiet and then looks straight in front of her very intently and then goes, actually, uh, life like this is very simple, huh? <laughs> and then I just had to like wow. sit. I had to recoil in, in the wisdom and go like, wow, Dolly, you've done it again. Just like another, <laughs> another profound Well done, Auntie Dolly. <laughs> the thing is, my mom is like, a frontline healthcare worker. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> so she right. works as a nurse in a hospital, right? So it's like, if she thinks life is simple, I don't know what the rest of us are going through <laughs> right now. <laughs> Okie dokie, time for our first segment, Pandemic Potluck. There's always too much bihun at the potluck. And Auntie Shirley's rendang looks suspiciously store-bought. And how much do you wish you could put some vodka in the almond lychee dessert? <laughs> Pandemic Potluck is the segment in which we each bring something to the table for discussion that's somehow or another drawn from our lives under the pandemic, which, let's face it, is whatever the fuck we want to talk about. Alright, Joel. So what are you bringing to the table today for Pandemic Potluck? Buff bouguignon. Wow. <laughs> I cannot I'm, eat like I'm more full. You know how to eat or not? I Hindu. Oh, sorry, I sorry, sorry. So, so, hey, so, so insensitive of me. Like, is it sorry, got sorry. vegan option? Is it got vegan? Got, got tempeh uh, bouguignon. Ah, uh, tempeh can, tempeh can. <laughs> yeah, tempeh is very trendy also, you know, amongst the angmos. Correct, amongst um, the angmos, right. Tempeh yeah, and yeah. yoga. It's a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> I mean, that's such a, a, a clumsy segue into what I actually want to talk about. <laughs> Which is... <laughs> Which is Angmos in Singapore during the pandemic, right? Um, Ooh, just generally oh Angmos in Singapore. So, I mean, like, I read this New York Times article last night, which was right. with an American journalist who's based in Singapore, and her name is okay, Megan okay. Stark. It's actually a very, very good article. It's called, like, uh, How the Pandemic Exposes the the Dark Side of Singapore. The Dark Side whatever, of Singapore, right? okay, yeah. Yeah, but, like, I mean, I don't want to go too much into the article, but, like, when I, after reading it, it made me very uncomfortable just to see like 
a very specific kind of white expatriate perspective on the whole on the whole on the whole thing. Um, is it the Robertson it, Key white 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 people? Is that what yeah 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 about? for sure? It's it's. I mean, she doesn't mention it specifically, but then obviously that came up right that thing where like uh on a sunny sun on a sunny weekend like a bunch of like white expatriates in Singapore's most notorious white enclave. Robertson Key were <laughs> photographed just having a grand old time some of them without their masks drinking beers by the river in full kind of disregard goodness the... bless white people and like I guess it just got me thinking about how yeah actually a lot of white expatriates or expatriates in general right like from from the west who come from, in all you know uh, ethnic and racial strikes but like predominantly white people seem to live in a in a kind of like little bubble of their own in this country. Oh, for sure. Like, you've seen it, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, a person that lives the... in Robertson Key doesn't need to leave Robertson Key at yeah. all, actually. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that's definitely a class thing as well, right? It's just like, there are rich people in Singapore who don't really leave their 6th Avenue areas as yeah. well. And yeah, the thing sure. is, though, that, like, coming in, if you're an expatriate coming into Singapore, like, more likely than not, you have a cushy expat setup, right? Like, uh, uh, you're, you're given an executive position and then, like, in a way, you're kind of, like, parachuted into condo living. Yeah, quite <laughs> where, literally from quite literally to, to penthouse. Yeah. From plane don't to even penthouse. Need, don't, yeah, from plane to pen, from the plane to the penthouse. Don't even need to walk, you know. Yeah, correct. Don't need to walk past. Don't need to the, step on the ground. Don't need. Just parachute straight into the function room. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say, like, condo function room, right? Is like the one reason I would want to live in a condo, just to say, oh, we have a function room. <laughs> Anyway, I mean, like, yeah. I'm digressing, but really, like, thinking about expat- white expatriates in Singapore makes me think about how so much of this city seems to be designed for their e- entertainment in a way, right? Like, we've all been to <laughs> Ansiang Hill oh, on yeah, a Friday for night, sure. yeah. right? Where the where demographic is very it, particular, it's very yeah, specific, and, yeah. And you can't avoid that reality it's just it hits you in the face that there are parts of the city you walk into and sometimes you feel like you're not even in Singapore anymore sure um, yeah and like I know this runs the risk of sounding very xenophobic which maybe is a little bit you know because like it is very difficult to talk about whiteness in this country without that kind of attitude because by and large right um, you know as I was saying earlier they, you, they a lot of them seem to live in this very privileged bubble where they don't have to interact with the rest of us and brings me back to this memory six to seven years ago when uh, a friend of mine and I stumbled into this rooftop party right and when we got there it was the OUE building by the way and by the time we got when we got there it was just like all gay expats all of them that sounds terrible expats all of them were expats right and then my friend and I and the wait staff were the only non-expatriates Oh my god, party. you, your friend, and the wait stuff. Oh yeah, god, that, and that it must felt, have been such a mindfuck a bit. Like a bit I know, like, it felt <laughs> oddly... It was very alienating. And then I remember looking out from OUE where you get a very beautiful view of the skyline, right? And thinking, oh my god, this glittering palace of a city is so fucked up. Like, there are whole parts of this city that are just built to facilitate the flow of foreign capital, you know, talent. Uh, and it just made me think about the, the hipsterification of major cities, right? It's like you can kind of reasonably expect any major city to have the same cluster of businesses, you know, restaurants, bars. And if, if you are from a specific kind of set as these, you know, upwardly mobile expatriates are, you can be thrown into any city around the world 
and yeah. kind of find your way around, right? But I mean, I have to say this, Joel. The elephant in my room now is that this is basically my experience with Chinese people in Singapore also to an extent. Yeah. You know, yeah. a large, a large. I also feel growing up a large, a large proportion of Singapore is, on some level, catered to the Chinese majority, and I yeah. feel othered and sometimes mm. not belong. You know, not to take away, not to take away from the conversation of. of no, Kishan. By all means, take away from that conversation because I think it's very no, it's very important. It's like when I moved to the UK and suddenly had to deal with white nonsense, right? And I became very conscious about how easy it would be to jump on the bandwagon and go, yes. oh, race. You know, as if yeah. you know, race was never a factor prior to my moving to the UK. A lot of Chinese people who move <laughs> abroad, you know, and deal with like racism for the first time suddenly act as if it's like a novel experience when actually we in this country are so you know guilty Chinese Singaporeans in this country are so guilty of like you know paying it on towards other people yeah right? correct and the, the um, one thing that I I hate hearing all the time is that I don't see race uh, and I hear it all the time from like from Chinese people it's like oh no I don't see race I'm colorblind I'm not racist I'm like no I think you really need to see yeah. race I think, I mean, I think yeah. the interesting thing though is that whiteness is a global phenomenon right you know whiteness reaches all over the world you know through culture and everything and uh, we, we all deal with it and especially like us as a former British colony right we have this kind of historical yeah sure um, it's everywhere sure so right okay there's an interesting thing where f- our friends and I were discussing this whole Robertson Key situation that we talked about earlier right and then like one of our friends pointed out this comment on the news article which was yeah. like wow this 71 year old man uh, flout rules then so quickly they 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 tank up him. This Angmor like no consequences like that. Why are the police scared to talk to the Angmor? Is it? I, I don't know. I mean, obviously it was a bit <laughs> flippant, right? But like it landed on something quite true, didn't it? There is some truth there, sis. There is really some truth mm. there. I mean, growing up, I was I, I found talking to white people a bit scary, intimidating, even because they were. They just had something about them, or at least I thought they had something about them, like this air of confidence that that you just cannot touch and that dwarfed you. Right? It's like you walk up to a white person and then all your hang-ups about the inferiority of your culture in relation to theirs flare up, right? And it kind of and then yeah. like it's things like it's things like oh shit, like is my English good enough? Am I going to embarrass myself when I talk to them? Correct, whatever, right? And also like if you are talking to an Angmora, you are always in their turf because where where are the Angmos? Mm. in an enclave Robertson mm. Kila Ansiang Hill <laughs> in places that you you possibly already don't feel that you belong oh god you know me and my friends were in a 7-Eleven like uh, when we went out clubbing and uh, we were buying more drinks at the 7-Eleven or whatever and this like white <laughs> dude comes up to us and I kid you not says Ni hao oh my at. god he says ni hao it's like okay like I know I sound like one of those um, the online citizen xenophobes right now right but it's really like oh my god this is our country la <laughs> <laughs> and then my friend who had studied in the UK and had dealt with this before just said just said something like go away or just kept quiet or something and then like the guy just kept going like what, what, what's wrong with you I'm trying to be friendly and then it's, are you serious it's like wow really it's like if you do this really if you stupid. do this to me in <laughs> If you do this to me in London, okay lah, whatever, right? I mean, even then, it's no, even then it's a problem. Already, yeah, somehow, a problem. <laughs> somehow to do it in this country is like, can don't? Yeah, please don't. What's wrong with you? Going back to the article that I started with, I think my main problem with it was that like the writer, although very insightful and so on the money about a lot of the ways in which this pandemic has exposed the cracks in our society, doesn't has a, doesn't seem to interrogate her own position within Singapore society. She talks about how this pandemic has exposed two cities, right? Which is, oh, 
uh, all these, you know, um, exploited migrant workers and the rest of us. But I'm like, no, girl, there are many cities and you are really in a city of your own, if you think about it. Yeah. Um, in, the, in the article, and, I think she, just, it was just, she that, just put two, right? It's just migrant, migrant yeah, workers. Yeah, and it was just us. that that kind of lack of awareness of the her own insider status within a very specific community, I think, was what made me very uncomfortable and then, like, uh, engendered this entire rant, right? I want to end this segment uh, on two notes, right? First note is, uh, to all our Angmore friends, we love you. I mean, like, the fact that we are friends <laughs> means you're one of the better ones. Correct, la, correct. So we love keep you. keep up the good work. Keep up, keep up the good work. Correct. Chop approve. And uh, the second note is... Um, my favorite Angmoor in Singapore story, right? Uh, which, which I love telling. Ooh, so, do tell, do uh, tell. A few years ago, my army friends and I, I think after reservists or whatever, right, we went to eat Zuta. And then we went to this very popular Zuta restaurant and it was very crowded. And then the auntie who was managing the queue, right, like was just so flustered. And she was like, oh, y'all go sit there, y'all go sit there, very busy, I'll come to you. You take a menu and then you look and then you wait, 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 wait. now very busy. And then she's like, she's, it's the yeah, typical Zuta she's like octopusing all around, right? And then this middle-aged white man turns up and then he goes up to her and then she was like you could tell that she was a bit uh, flustered by the encounter because her English not very good right so it, yeah and then she was mm. like oh uh, sir you go sit down wait for your turn or whatever right and then instead of going to sit down in the queue he just kept harassing her like how long will the wait take oh uh, what's good to order and then just asking a lot of stupid questions when she's clearly right like trying to fight multiple fires and then like I could tell that she didn't have it in her to kind of tell him off so I just went up to her rescue and I said uh, excuse me could you please just go sit down like she told you it's very busy you can tell that she's very very busy and doesn't have time to entertain your questions right now you know just you know everybody else is waiting so can you right and then he turns to me and he's livid right just like fucking livid and he looks at me and he says don't you dare talk to me like that I'm educated you know I'm educated I know, right? What? Educated lad. Sis is educated. I was like, <laughs> I what? I don't understand. What a strange, what a strange comment. No, obviously, I'm educated. Ob- like I'm not. Yeah, one obviously, of the rest. yeah, what obviously, Miss Thing is trying to say like I'm not like the other girls, right? But like I tell you, right? Sometimes when you deal with these kind of things, the best thing to do is how I responded, which is, I looked at the son of a bitch in the face, and I laughed. Alright, Kisha, you had something very juicy you want to share with us today. Sex buddies. Ooh. Oh yeah, you heard right. Sex buddies. No sex, please. We are a former British colony. <laughs> <laughs> so basically what the Dutch government is proposing is that it's for single people to go out and find a sex buddy during this corona times to let off a little bit of steam. Now this this started apparently because uh, people were very upset, specifically the younger people were very upset during their lockdown uh, where they were not allowed to go out and mix, uh, mix around with people and find people to hook up with and the government finally relented and said, you know what, sex is a basic <laughs> human need and so... We're just going to lean into it and we're going to give you directions on how you should go about and find a sex buddy. And Joel, let me tell you, I went onto the website. Maybe it is the government website. Uh, uh, yeah, it's the government website. And I translated everything and I tell you there are some choice sentences in there <laughs> that, that I am duty bound to share. Oh my so, god. Uh, they talked about how you can be intimate with someone and there are three ways you can be intimate with someone. The first is to be intimate with someone that is at home with you. 
You know, so your partner that's at home with you, this is the best way to be intimate with someone. Make sure, firstly, that the person is not sick and that you are not sick. And if both of you are okay, just go for it. Okay? Or for that matter, Kishan, like, make sure it's not a family member, la, but... Ah, <laughs> uh, sure. Sure, I, I, think, I think maybe they, did, they said no need, they didn't, they didn't feel no, like they I'm sorry. to verbalise that. La. The second thing that they, they recommended, what they say is that you can also be intimate with someone at a distance. And they say this, uh, quote unquote, this sentence... You can safely be intimate with someone at a distance of 1.5 meters. And I was thinking, huh? What are you talking about? <laughs> and they and they went on to explain. They said again, quote unquote from this uh, government website. Think of telling erotic stories, exchanging fantasies, masturbating together, or webcam sex, for example. Only do this with both consent if you want to share something personal. <laughs> I'm sorry, the fact that they had to do this, that, that they were so explicit about saying it, tells me two things, you know. Well done for a government body for leaning in into this and saying, you know what, people are going to go out and they're going to they're going to have sex anyway, let's try and control this as much as possible and give them a lot of guidelines to make sure that they do this safely. Good on you for doing that. But I'm also thinking, wow, I felt like a parent telling you what to do. And, I'm th- and I literally just read this sentence and crossed my legs. You know? Can I just say at this point that I am very tickled by the thought of like two gays in a darkened park standing 1.5 meters away from each other whispering erotic stories. Actually, the gays have got this down. Like, you know... I'm just thinking about cottaging in the 90s where you would just stand at the urinal maybe 1.5 metres away from each other and just have a good time. Yeah, spot on. Okay, so anyway, the third thing that they said was that if you don't have a partner at home and you're all alone and you and you find it very difficult to not be physically intimate during this corona time. Yeah, just because dirty stories you... isn't enough, right? <laughs> <laughs> they said you can go out and find a sex buddy. Mm. So that's the that's the thing you can do. Go out and find a sex buddy, and they were very explicit about how you should find a sex buddy. You mean like make a regular, sure like a regular sex buddy? Yeah, correct. Find this buddy and make sure this is the only person that you have sex with, and make sure that for them, you are the only person that they're having sex with as well. And they came up with a bunch of um, different ways for you to identify a good sex buddy, like someone who's not <laughs> sick, someone that uh, is also is also okay with this idea. You know, so so it was it was. Uh, it was it was talked about on many levels. Uh, when I was reading this, I found this both equally wonderful to read and e- wonderful to hear that a government body is actually telling these people to do this. Yeah. But also, at the same time, a little bit uncomfortable. Is it so difficult for a month to go without sex? I mean, I'm sure we all have different sexual appetites. I get that. But truly, when it when we consider the the extent of this pandemic, is it truly so? Is it really so difficult to? To just keep in your pants for one month. And I say this because the statistics for Netherlands are, tr- are quite bad. Their, their infection rates and their, their, their fatality rates are really, really not the best. I mean, well, I, mean I don't know. Yeah. Like, as someone who has had a sexual dry spell of three years before, let me just weigh in here and say the answer to your rhetorical question is Dude. yes. Like, you know, what's a month? What's two months? Three years, babe. Three years. Child's play. <laughs> but then actually to go back to this idea of 
finding a sex buddy who you'll be more or less sexually monogamous with for the whole pandemic, that's hard. From my own experience, like, there are some people I've hooked up with whose names I don't even know. And if you're just encouraging me during this time to find one person that I'll go to regularly for sex, I think that might be a bit difficult for me. It'd be like, oh, are we married now? <laughs> like, uh, yeah, lah. No, I guess that just... To just saying that you go and find someone that you're comfortable with. You know what? I think for for many people, it could even be a friend. That's a very kind of queer way into it, right? The idea that the person that you have sex with doesn't necessarily have to be a romantic partner. It could be a very casual sexual relationship that you both enjoy. It doesn't have to go anywhere. And it's actually ultimately very sex positive because I think that a culture around sex that is so weighed down by romance and commitment actually yes, is quite, exactly. it's quite conservative. Um, I so think it can I'm, be a bit damaging. Yeah, the separation it, it of is. sex and relationship am, is very healthy and free. I, yes, I am all for it. And it's just like, of course, like, you know, the Dutch have it down, right? I mean, I, I could never see this happening in Oh Singapore. my god, you know impossible. I, I actually would, I'm very curious how Singaporeans would react reading to this. What is the Dutch government trying to do, man? Encourage people to go and meet instead 1.5, eh? you don't know one thing will lead to another and then we'll all have like outbreak, man. And then... <laughs> yolo, yolo. Be thankful for our leaders. Yeah. Spray hand emoji. I mean, like, <laughs> the reason I, I think this would never happen in Singapore is because like our government is so sex negative. You know what I mean? Yes, it's like, indeed, like indeed. God, God forbid that in a country with like dwindling population, right? You know, they they, they, they they have something positive to say about sex every once in a while. Actually, I can't think of it, right? I think the most positive thing that any Singapore government person has ever said about sex might actually be Josephine Teo. Oh my God, I know what you're going to <laughs> you know, say. Right? When she says, you can have sex in small spaces. <laughs> Everybody, you can have sex in small spaces. And I think that actually makes Josephine Teo Singapore's number one sex positive ambassador. Truly. <laughs> She's the best we've got, everyone. It's time to move on to lukewarm takes. Now, in this segment, two elder millennials will be giving their two cents worth on something that's been having a bit of a moment on the internet. So today we have something particularly interesting to talk about. Like it literally broke the internet at some point. Did it not? Wait, sorry, I'm just taking a I'm just taking a sip of my potent libation because this lukewarm take is gonna take a lot out of me. One sec. <laughs> Alright. On today's lukewarm take, we are discussing the pop sensation known as Adele. Adele. Well, what exactly happened was a few, well, I think it was a few weeks ago now, um, Adele, after a hiatus of what felt like a century, right? Um, during which we know that she's had a child and, and so yeah. on and so forth, posts a picture on her Instagram. And that picture was such a complete transformation from the, the image of her that we know that it just completely broke the internet. She has lost a ton of weight. And just yes. looks like uh, the, the thin reality TV version of herself. Yeah, can I just say that when I first saw that Instagram picture, I, I think you sent it to a group chat of ours, I had no idea who this mm. person was. And I was thinking like, what? And I had to look yeah. at it like three or four times until I think you said it was Adele. And I was like, what? Yes, and that was actually a very common response around the internet, right? P- people having to convince each other that this was actually Adele. Um, and, like, and while we're talking about Adele's Instagram, I just want to pause for a moment to like admire how she has like 5 billion followers, but she only follows zero people. <laughs> oh my god, is that real? She's followed zero people. Yeah. Anyway, I just want to preface this segment by saying that I have some reservations about even talking about um, this at all because 
I I think that women in media, entertainment, the arts, whatever, in public life are so disproportionately critiqued for their appearance in a way that their male counterparts never are that it makes me think a lot about wading into a discussion in any form about a woman's yeah, appearance. I understand that, right? yeah. Um, but that said, I think the, the, I, that said, I do think that the reaction to her weight loss is very interesting and it, it tells us a lot about the kind of culture that we live in that makes a lot of judgments about women's bodies, about fat bodies, about bodies in general. Um, the TLDR for this section, if you want to skip like a very long Joltan diatribe on the subject is, yeah, if you're, by the way, if you're Joltan's friends, I think you can fast forward 15 minutes. <laughs> The TLDR for this section is It's a woman's body It's a Dell's body She can do whatever the fuck she wants with it Without judgement Good or bad That's it Let's get into <laughs> it, right? So there were two main responses to Dell's weight loss The first one being the kind of very predictable Congratulatory response, right? So it's a lot of people going like Oh my god, girl Yes, queen Weight loss You look amazing You look beautiful Transformation t- Tuesday or Thursday Whichever it is Like, oh, yeah, glow yeah. up that was, the, that, was the, that was the bulk of the responses, I think Yeah Yeah, that was the bulk of the responses Because like in our culture In a kind of dramatic weight loss Is something to be celebrated Akin to like rebirth Or someone coming back Oh yeah from the dead, Oh yeah, for sure, you know? for sure. Yeah, I, I can see yeah. that Right, and I, I mean, like, the problems with this are apparent and obvious, right? Like, we live in a culture where, like, to inhabit a fat body is to face a lot of shit from the world around you. And I think that we have to be very careful every time we talk about weight loss in a positive way that we are not actually implying, or not even implying, directly suggesting that the body that you inhabited before that weight it's loss wrong. was somehow yeah, less wrong. desirable yeah. or wrong. And I think... And actually, that's one of the main critiques that's come from this kind of reaction, right? I think I saw someone, a fat activist on Twitter post, like, she wouldn't even use the name. She's like, there's going to be a lot of talk right now about the body transformations. There's going to be a lot of talk right now about diets and weight loss. And I just want to say that you are beautiful, you know, in whatever shape that you come in. And uh, if you need help, you know... DM me because like this is going to be a difficult time for all of us. Oh, that's 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 terribly heartbreaking. So yeah. I mean, it's, that's the first response, which is like whatever, right? The second response I think is a bit more interesting and a, bo- a bit more nuanced, which is that there were people who were very disappointed, uh, and you know the, the the responses range from oh god, she was beautiful before, why did she have to do this? Or like ah, in a way, I preferred her before, or. And then like other responses that were kind of like she she was always such an icon for being. Confident in your body at whatever mm. size, and she was such an icon for um, uh, body positivity. Right. What we all love about Adele is that she's so fucking oh, down yeah. earth, right? She's salty. Right. She's like she's, she's like, like lovable the girl down in the pub. And 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 I think a lot of people kind of combine that with her physical expression sure. and and the fact that she lost weight meant that she. I guess why people were so disdainful was because they thought that maybe she lost a bit of her essence along perhaps, the way. Perhaps right, or that you know it, it suggests that perhaps she gave in. Yeah. Yeah, for or sure. sold out, or yeah, and I think I can I I certainly empathize with this position, right? Because it's like yeah, we live in a world that tells you that you know big bodies are problem are inherently problematic and wrong and corrupt or whatever, right? So to lose a kind of like so called icon of body positivity to thinness feels like a loss, right? Uh, and I can understand the disappointment that comes with that, but like I I feel like. That position is, I mean, like both positions are kind of flawed in different ways. It's like my, my problem with this latter position, you know, with mourning the loss of Adele's body, whatever it is, is that actually 
at the end of the day, we don't own You're her right. body. Absolutely. Really? You know, it's, it's her body. We don't own it. And also, we don't know what her relationship with her body Absolutely. is. Absolutely. In fact, in the Instagram post, yeah. uh, in fact, in, in mm. while there's so, so many opinion pieces out there about this weight loss, she, the only person that has not talked about this is Adele herself. In her Instagram post, she just basically mm. said, thank you for birthday greetings or whatever. Stay safe and bye-bye. Yeah. You know, she does not address this weight loss. Yeah, you're right. So we don't know exactly and, how she feels. And actually, at the end of the day, right, like, I personally think that weight loss is neither a positive or a negative thing. It's ultimately a very ambivalent experience. And this is coming from someone who has undergone, like, a few weight loss, like, journeys. Yeah. Right? Uh, like, I have been really big and I have been really thin. And right now, like, I'm going through another kind of, like, weight loss moment. Like, I've been, I've lost a lot of weight over the past three years. Um, weight loss is a very ambivalent process. It's like, you can lose all this weight, but it still feel that you still feel like kind of traumatized by all the things that you had to deal with as a fat person. It's, it's almost like the body is a giant hard drive For that sure. stores the information. The body remembers the trauma it goes through. It most definitely. The body remembers, right? Yeah, and it records trauma. It records it, it records how it feels to be in the world. And like, you know, being fat is not something that disappears once you lose all of that weight. I guess what, what, what is out there is what we are talking about. I think many, many people would agree. You know, many people would agree that weight loss is an ambivalent sort of... Fe- uh, it's an ambivalent endeavour. It's an ambivalent thing. But that is not the prevailing narrative out there. The prevailing narrative out there is, is yeah. one of... One is good and the other one is bad. And whenever uh, you one... You know, uh, like, I think uh, the reason who's... why, like, the broader conversation on weight loss isn't more nuanced, I think, is because it actually goes to some really just fucking hard emotional places. It For me, for example, right, like, when I was at my fattest and, you know, I was reading and espousing a lot of uh, fat politics, right? A lot of the, and a lot of that philosophy I still fundamentally believe in and agree with. Um, but then losing weight makes you feel like you've betrayed a political position almost. Right. You know what I mean, it's like there's a sense of betrayal to an older self who's gone through all of this when you lose all this weight. And then it's also coupled with people coming up to you and saying like, Oh, Joel, what does it mean that you've lost all this weight? Uh, you know, do you still believe in the things that you believe? And it's like, yes, fatness is not a static position, right? It's constantly in the air around you. It's like you lose all the weight, but it's there in a negative space yeah. around your body as a, th- you know, almost kind of, there's an anxiety about like, oh shit, do I, what, what happens if I return to that position? And then it's that second thought where you go like, oh, that should be okay. You know, like, why is it a problem to go back? And then, you know, it's this constant, um, Kind of debate like you have to negotiate your loss and the and the the ghost of the space that you still inhabit a little bit. Oh, that's that's a that's a bit. I mean, like to be honest, I feel a lot better about my body in general nowadays than I used to. And like even three years ago, when I was a lot bigger, just as I moved to London, I was feeling and I like because of the move to London and and my uh, immersion in a kind of queer scene that was just so robustly body positive. I I began to experience my body in different ways um you know people talk a lot about how confidence is sexy right but then confidence is actually it's easier said than done right like to be confident is not just something that you can will and then definitely you need people around you to sort of help nurture that confidence i think we talked about this right confidence is a community project it's something that we all need to do and to, to work and help each other out with. It wasn't until I moved to London where I felt when people were complimenting my body that they actually meant yeah. it. And it was that res, that it was that reciprocity, I think, that actually allowed me to live more comfortably and victoriously, I suppose, in my body. For sure. I think there's something very caustic about, 
about beauty and about what one should aspire to be in Singapore that that that, that, that is not there in London because of the pervas- the pervasiveness of this queer culture and people celebrating craziness and like just being really truly being yeah. yourself. I think it's that thing where like politics translates into lived experience in ways that are very hard to track in a place like Singapore where the political dimension is so frozen. It translates into ways of viewing the body as yeah, well. Yeah, for sure. Do you know what I what mean? What is accepted and what yeah. is not and then we can't change it. Do you know, yeah. I, like, I, I have a friend who's uh, a, Singapore, uh, a Singaporean friend of mine who has lived in the States for a very long time, right? She says that every time she comes back to Singapore, she feels fat again. Is it the humidity? <laughs> I don't know I what don't know. it is. It's yeah. horrible. <laughs> maybe, it's the, maybe it's the tropical yeah, weather. It's, the tropical it's kind of weather. like, ah, yeah, the weather's so hot, you're so fat for yeah, what, right. you know? Actually, you know what, Joel? You have talked about this to me before. You There is some truth to that humidity thing. The humidity thing makes you sweat and makes you very aware of your body. Whereas in, a, in, in, in climates yeah. like... Like like London, where yeah, yeah, yeah. where you know you don't face the sun as much. It's always windy. It's always cold. You don't experience this, and you 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 become. Yeah, it sounds trivial, right? But actually, one of the most immediate experiences of fatness for me was perspiration. Doesn't it? No, yeah, yeah, definitely. I understand that. Yeah, yeah. You would pick. You would pick clothes. Yeah, just based on this. You would pick clothes entirely based I on this. I hated it when people came up to me and said, "Hey, Joe, you look very sweaty today. You just came for a run." Now, just like, do you not think? <laughs> I know that I'm sweaty. <laughs> I feel it all over my body. I'm sure the tropical weather has something to do with it, but it's not an excuse. No, it's not. It's not, I'm not, I, I, <laughs> it's not I wasn't saying that. To be no, mean to like fat th- people. Th- there's some truth in, actu- in actually this humidity thing that we were making light of. <laughs> Let's go back to Adele. Yeah, right? let's go back to Adele. <laughs> Leave the woman alone. Correct. It's her body. That's basically She can stand. do whatever the she fuck she wants with it. Whatever the fuck yeah. she wants. It's, it's her body. Women yeah. can do whatever the fuck they want with their bodies without judgment good or bad and that is the yeah, team that is the team alright and it's time for our final segment which is what to watch at the end of the world because pandemic or not the world is ending we're calling it here on this podcast and we're going to review the latest in stay home entertainment what's up for review today Joel don't fuck with cats. Yeah, so I know that it's a, we're a bit like late to the game, right? Because this has been on Netflix for a very long time. But I personally have wanted to talk about it with someone for a very, very long time. Okay, um, good. That's why we're here. Yeah, first all of right. all, okay, there are some major spoilers ahead. So maybe just like go and listen to another podcast if you don't want to spoil it for yourself, right? But it's a documentary basically. And in this documentary, it starts off with like a video that goes viral on the internet, which shows some asshole who's anonymous uh, killing a cat. And then this causes like a bunch of internet nerds, right, who kind of gang up and try and figure out who did this uh, and they try and like identify it. And that's the premise of the of the title, right, which is like the one thing you cannot do on the internet is fuck with cats. <laughs> you yes. will get, <laughs> you will get, get in trouble if you fuck with cats, we'll right? Tanka. Um, yeah, so like they are on this guy's trail and they think they know who he is. And then they start to worry that this guy is a bit of a sociopath and might actually go on to do something worse than killing cats. Right, because um, yeah, sociopaths usually yeah, do, right? Yeah, yeah. they start with animals and then they exactly. go on to something else, right? and then something bigger to bigger animals like humans. And so they're like, hey, police, hello. There's this like maniac who's killing cats. He's done it twice. So there's another video, right? And then like if you don't stop him now, it might be a human being next. And then true enough, another video goes viral which is a snuff video, right? Which shows someone murdering a man in cold blood. And this internet brigade are like, shit, 
it's him, guys. It's him. Yeah, see, we told you right. You didn't listen we to us. We told you. We, got, you know, it's got his fingerprints all over it. And then finally, the police are like, oh, okay, okay. And then like, then it becomes a story of like this international manhunt for this guy whose name is Luca Magnota. Uh, and then they finally catch him and whatever, right? Yeah, um, and they caught him in like the most and- banal fashion, right? I, I believe he was like an internet. He was at an internet cafe, and then uh, his face was already all out there by Interpol. And then the it, the proprietor of the internet cafe recognized him and called in the police. And then like the police came in and captured because him because the fucker was so vain that he had gone to an internet cafe to look for news coverage of the hunt, the international manhunt for him, right? So the show starts off making you think that it's about like cats, right? But then it ends in a completely different place, which is like murder. So how did you feel about the show, Kishin? Okay, so I actually really, really enjoyed it. I remember watching this and I watched it all in one sitting because I desperately wanted to know what happened. I mm. I, 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 actually really like the genre of true crime. I think it's mm. so fun to follow the perspective of the killer and understand why yeah. why he or she is doing what he's doing because you, you rarely hear the perspective of the killer when the, the, the killer is sort of coloured as like this monster. But it's so interesting it, it speaks to me on like some dark level that I would just want to know what the killer why the killer does what he does so and what do we learn about this p- particular killer that he's a bit of a megalomaniac and has yeah, like delusions, delusions of grandeur, of grandeur right? and kind of like absolutely. unhealthily obsessed with films and movies right and he kind of imagined himself yeah. as the protagonist of a, a kind of murder flick you know yeah yeah he fancies himself like some famous Hollywood person yeah I don't know though it's like sure I can understand the whole trying to understand a killer POV right but like I the I've left the show feeling very dirty like obviously dirty and disgusted because like of the murder that we bore witness to right and how just fucking senseless and horrible it was but then also really disgusted with the show for taking what what was a really awful and violent event and turning it into entertainment um and i I don't know like for me it it just felt very ethically dodgy right and also bearing in mind that the the victim of the murder whose name is lin chin right who's a chinese man who's living in uh, canada Canada, i believe yeah was murdered uh you know his family is still dealing with it it didn't happen very long ago uh, and then to okay, can you imagine what it must be like, right? To see the the story of how your son got murdered put on Netflix for everybody to see as entertainment, and then for that entertainment to not even be centered on your son, right? But then on the guy who did it. But I just think that it's a very gray area. I don't yeah. know. I I see. I, I I take many issues with that statement because when the murder happened, the family probably went through a media circus already. I mean, it must have been traumatic. Mm. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that they're used to it and that they should get used to it. So a Netflix special shouldn't matter at all. No, not at all. Mm. But but it's not like this Netflix special is new media circus at all. No, the family has went through it already. And mm. I don't believe that the show was insensitive to the victim at all. In fact, I think it was done rather sensitively. Yes, it didn't fo- it didn't focus on. The, the victim but I don't think true, that's the nature of true crime the main thing about true crimes is that we want to know what the killer is thinking about we want to see from the killer's perspective you know so I was totally fine with it but it's always at the expense somehow of the stories and the dignity of the victims you know and in this one in particular this show in particular kind of really got my goat because like it seemed to display some awareness of yeah true crime is a genre that typically sidelines the victims to kind of glamorize in a way uh, make us fascinated with these killers who become like the protagonists of these shows in a way right yeah so like there's this throwaway moment where like interviews like a good friend of the 
of Lin yeah. Them. Yeah, of Lin Jin, and it's just like, oh, trying to flesh out his life story. Um, and then it also does this thing at the end where one of the internet brigade who's been extensively interviewed for the show, uh, turns to the audience and says, like, what do, what, what does it mean that this guy, Luca Magnota, who, you know, did these horrible crimes, uh, was obsessed with fame and notoriety? What does it mean for us to be, to have fed that? need for notoriety are we somehow to blame and then turns to the audience and literally breaks the fourth wall and goes are you to blame or something like that and i just like at this point i just wanted to throw something at the screen because it's like you don't you don't make this finely tuned entertainment product right and then like really engage us through it using all of these tricks and twists and turns and then scold me for watching it is it and then scold you at the end for participating (laughs) in it in my mind it's just like yeah but like why did you make this stupid show in the first place it's a trap right you trap it's literally a trap you trapped us by thinking by making us think that it's a show about cats anybody loves cats right and then you keep us engaged until we basically see a murder story did we all sign up for it I'm not sure no, yeah. you know? I totally didn't see it coming that's for yeah. sure I mean I remember the the, the, the ending where, where this where she, she sort of scolded us right like for like why are yeah. you complicit in this why are you feeding into his ego all this sort of thing but Mm. I know, yeah, it made me, it made me wonder, like, oh my god, yeah, why am I watching this? You know, what am I doing? But it, I tell you, it didn't turn me off true crime at all. I crave it. I watch a whole bunch. I still enjoy it. Yeah, like, do I have to worry about you, Kishin? Maybe lah, like, maybe <laughs> just a little bit. It's, it's, then isn't it good that we are podcasting, like, so far away? <laughs> yeah, like, I think I want to continue socially distancing from you. Yeah, right? bless this um, pandemic time. Yeah, next time when the newspaper interview me, I'll say, mm, yeah, Kishin was very, um, robust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was certainly a character. <laughs> no, I had nothing to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> no, can I just say at this point, right? Yeah. You know the whole concept of like, oh, it's too soon. It's like, <laughs> do you remember when, I don't know if it was that trip to Bangkok that we took, but like we went to a drag show, right? And then like this was after Winnie Houston had died in her bathtub, right? And a drag queen in Bangkok was already making fun of it. Oh, yeah, this is familiar. You remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah, it I was like, this. she was doing the most grotesque Whitney Houston drag and like really parodying the death uh, yeah. overdose yeah. Right? yeah man that drag queen was just incredibly indecent it was so awful right yeah it was quite awful to watch I think it was just like a few days I can't remember two how days. many days it was like two days after two days. had died and she was doing this like bath oh my gosh drag right it's like come on two days left. even Jesus took three days to come back from the dead <laughs> <no? laughs> it's so good <laughs> so like we have decency enough to stay away from telling these stories in an entertaining way when it's like someone like Whitney Houston but why is it that this murder uh, it's, it's like when is it when are we removed enough from it to be able to tell it in an entertaining fashion that's my question but I think that's See, very, it's, it's a very different thing because that drag performance yala. was truly making was was horrendous to watch but here is that I is still, it are they truly is it truly different I think it's truly this different where I, because I don't think it's that different really no that I think don't fuck with cats there is a kind of indecency to the way that it told you the story in the most kind of really riveting entertaining way possible yeah I, to try and I, grab I, you I think, in right yeah I, I do think that there is there is an overlap there they may be very different examples right but like it, it did strike me as being really indecent by the end of no, it no I think it's entirely different and I guess this is where we agree to disagree Joel That's 
the end of our second episode. Aww. If you stuck around, thank you so much, mysterious listeners, the plural, for <laughs> sticking around all the way to the end. That is quite an accomplishment, right? Like, I do recognize that asking people to stay tuned for like 40 plus minutes is quite an ask. And if you've made it to this point, like, what can I say except God bless you? Yeah, God bless you. Guan Yin bless you. Like non-denominational, like power of the universe bless you. <laughs> yeah, correct. Correct. It's true. It's true. So I'm yep. just going to leave you all with some words of wisdom. Be kind to yourself and the people around you and have a victorious week ahead. This has been Kishan signing and off. this has been Joel. Thank you very much and see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.